So first yeah. of all, Mary, thank you for joining me again. Uh, oh. I really wanted to do a follow-up. You know that your your our original podcast on my summer with Nisargadatta is is very popular. Uh, you know, a lot of people apparently a lot of people listen to it. Um, and I wanted to do a follow-up. Uh, and as I've as I've said to you, I envision this someday as a book of some sort of an, or another. Uh, and because, and I'll tell, and I wanted to say a word as to why, because I'm hoping we can pursue this line of thought in future episodes as well. But I feel like you had a very interesting experience having spent the summer with Nisargadatta. Uh, I've talked, I've, I have other podcasts with other uh, people like, like John Baker, who co-wrote uh, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism with Chogam Trungpa and who lived with Trungpa when he first moved to America uh, mm. for a time. You know, these are experiences, nobody's gonna have that experience again. You know, that, that came and went. Uh, Trungpa's gone, uh, Nisargadatta's gone. Uh, and I feel like it's, it's not, I don't want those experiences to be lost from memory, from our cultural memory. You know, there's something important right. happened uh, in which uh, people like you uh, at a young age caught a kind of optimistic fever about mm -hmm. something called enlightenment that you were hearing about from the East that you recognize to be an incredible, something incredibly significant. Uh, so much so that you devoted your whole life to it. Uh, and, right. and I feel like over time, what naturally happens is something that starts out very innocent, very fresh, very amazing, uh, as it gets more popular, you get more, you get examples of people who take it in bad directions. It becomes commercialized. It, it, it gets wrapped up in a kind of economic system. Uh, it, it, it takes on a lot of qualities that are distasteful. And then, and then the original inspiring kernel that was attracting people kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And, right. and, and it's the negative manifestations that are almost inevitable for just about everything. You know, they, they say the same thing about, about like people talk about rock and roll music, you know, when it was so innocent and fresh in the beginning and then it becomes a business and then there's excesses and, and, and problems. It's almost inevitable. And then the whole thing gets painted as somehow off. Uh, right. So I want to use podcasts like this to capture that kernel, the, the thing that was driving so many people like yourself to devote your life to mm. enlightenment. And then, you know, obviously also what, what you discovered. And so that spirit doesn't get lost. So that the original inspiring nut of inspiration continues to have a voice that can be mm. heard among all the chatter. And by the way, I have my copy of I Am That. <laughs> I think mine's in it. It is. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, <laughs> see is, is yours from those days? 
No, my, unfortunately, when I moved from America, I actually had it right through to when I left America seven years ago. And I had a whole lot of books packed up and I lost one of those boxes. And that oh. was, I know. Can you believe that? I was That's like, amazing. I know. It's really tragic. But um, anyway, it's somewhere that someone might have it. Hopefully. That's right. You can still get yeah. copies. Yeah, yeah. I also, just to say, this is a sideline, not part, but I had the original manuscript that was handed to me. It was literally just a typed brochure of UG Krishnamurti's book, which oh, he really? called The Mistake. It was called The Mystique of Enlightenment. Yes, The Mystique of he, Enlightenment. When he I handed have that. it to me, he said, this should have been called The Mistake of Enlightenment. That's a whole nother story. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. It literally was typed. It wasn't, you know, yeah. And that went too. And I had this oh, thing. I see. I hear another podcast. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> that was a different one. Yeah, different but, making. But fascinating also. Yeah, very fascinating. Um, yeah. So let me, uh, what I thought, because we did one podcast, so we've kind of got like a general outline of the story, but I, I wanted to go a little bit more deeply mm -hmm. into some specifics. Um, mm -hmm. And the first thing I wanted to ask you was just, um, when did you first find out about Nisargadatta and what was it that, that made you decide that you wanted to meet him? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, just first, before I say anything, I just want to thank you, Jeff, for inviting me back on. Oh, of and, course. Um, I'm really glad, you know, that um, there is that interest in still, you know, in, in the Sagadada, and yeah, it's, it's really good because I think we would both, I mean, you said a lot, and I totally agree about what happens in time with these things, but um, the, that kind of uh, depth of of just truth, unadorned, non-ideological, um, pure transmission from somewhere else within a human being who's very human uh, is profound and hopefully doesn't get lost because those are the, that's what we need more mm. than ever, I think now. But, um, and I still consider myself um, incredibly fortunate and blessed or however one sees that privilege to have been able to spend that time particularly with him but having those years of being able to devote and immerse myself completely in this uh sub more than a subject <laughs> in this sort of yeah uh, life life defining um arena really you know depth so yes what was it um I remember really clearly, funnily enough, exactly when I heard about it. And um, it was, um, I think it was in 1976. And I was living in a little tiny hut. Yeah, I was living in Tiruvannamalai, actually, which in those days was a tiny rural village of which there were literally only five Westerners living there. Mm. And I'm saying that because now I know it's a very vibrant, you know, place that people destination and also resident and a lot of people live there but in those days it was very small very rural in 76 and I had a little hut that I was doing um in a in a kind of compound very near the ashram it was a little thatch hut it had one room a little porch and I was doing a lot of meditation in that and I was obviously there because of um, the teachings of Ramana Maharshi, which had really spoken to me. And so I was doing long periods of very 
protracted practice and I would read just a small bit of Ramana's work um, and uh, his teachings and then I would meditate right that was the context and then one day it was actually I I'm pretty sure it was Murray Murray Feldman who came in because we he was he was one of the five westerners living in that neighborhood and um, he came in and he had this book and he said uh, you've got to read this you know and it was um, I am that <clears throat> it had been I don't know, recently published, I think, but only in India. Mm. It wasn't in the West. And I took it and I had no electricity, Jeff. And I think I ruined my eyes actually from that night. <laughs> but I started to read it and um, I didn't stop. I was a whole night by candlelight with that book, right? And, um, and, the, and what it was is it was, I thought, oh, my God, this he, you know, Nisargadha, Sri Nisargadha is alive, right? I was there studying and, you know, and, and Raman Mahashi Ashram, I think, still is a very vibrant place. It's a very good place to, to, to do this, to do serious sadhana and practice, etc. But this book was just alive. You know, it spoke very, very directly to me. And I knew it was, you know, it was just slightly different expression, but the same truth that was speaking it just spoke to me as being undeniably true and um and I realized that he was alive right because somewhere in the book it said that in the beginning or end and I came out of that and I think I just said to Murray I'm going you know because I realized he was living in Mumbai Bombay at the time and um I don't know but within not long maybe a week I um I went, I got on a train and, uh, and went across to Mumbai, right? Uh, there's one little tiny caveat to this story that I want to tell you, which sure. I think is quite nice. Uh, at the time, too, I was, um, it wasn't really my teacher, but I loved him, was the beggar. And uh, it was Ram Surat Kumar, who was this, mm. you know, very um, colorful, profound, sweet, enlightened uh, person who was living on the steps of the huge temple in Tiruvannamalai and he was you probably know this but Lee Lazowak's guru actually. I was going to ask you I thought that was Lee Lazowak yeah yeah he was and um and I also spent a lot of intimate time with him, intimate meaning close you know uh, time with him a very 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 different kind of teacher but had his own thing anyway I took this book along because it had a photograph in the front of it of Nisargadatta sitting you know in the and um I always remember he picked it up, he looked at me, and he touched, he looked, he flicked through it, spoke perfect English, um, um, Ram Surat, and he so read a couple bits. He put his head on the feet of the photograph, you know, the photograph in this, uh, he handed, he said, you should go. <laughs> you know, I was going to go, but I, it was just very, you know, he said something, you know, you should go, this is for you, and um and, you know, I, I was anyway, but that was like very, it was just very nice, you know, to have mm, that. It's great that, confirmation. Yeah, it was real, really, really was confirmation because I think he knew, he obviously knew me quite well. Anyway, I did. I traveled over and I, that's what got me to go because I was, I would say there was a, reading that book, I literally couldn't put it down. It was, there's such a transmission still from that book, right? And at the time, if you imagine, I was just, li I was living there only doing sort of sadhana. So mm. it was like pure, you know, kind of, yeah, it was like imbibing, you know, 
nectar, really. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> Beautiful. So, so you, so you decided to go. You got a blessing to go. Yes. Uh, yes. And um, <clears throat> and. And then you went. So before we before before we get to your actual meeting, I wanted to ask you a, a more general question um, uh, about the you know about the time because you you know this 1976. There weren't a lot of Westerners in India at that time. Uh, it was some. There were some adventurous yeah. souls were there, um, and among those souls. You know, among those those Westerners that had had made that journey, and um, well, I guess what I want to ask you is, what first drew you to to go to India? How did how did that occur? Mm. What what did you just because you were living in England, I assume? No, I was actually in Australia. You were in Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so what did you discover in Australia that then compelled you to go to India in the first place? Mm. It's a good question. Um, well, I mean, very interesting. And this probably sounds a little strange to some of your listeners, but um, I was um, probably around, I don't know, just before I left high school anyway, about 18, 17, 18, I was already feeling, I guess, a restless spirit, right? I, I was already feeling, I think, the... Um, kind of enclosure of the culture I was in, which was, you know, regular culture, right? Middle-class culture. And um, it felt confining to me. And, and, you know, I was coming to an end and, you know, I, I was uh, fortunate. I got a scholarship because, I, you know, to, to go to university. And I was thinking, what am I going to do? And, but at the time, I was out of that resistance. I was already reading books that I had no idea, Jeff, that I was seeking something really, I didn't have that concept. And I had no one around me, my friends actually were very political. Uh, my close friends, because it was during, I think I told you this at the last one it was during the era of the Vietnam War. Mm. And, you know, we, we were very politically um, orientated and <clears throat> social justice, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, political justice. And um, and Australia, and there was a lot around that. But but I had this other thing. I felt like I was drawn to books, books like you know that Herman Hess and uh, um, who else? Alan Watts, Roman Pirzig. I remember reading that one. You know, the art of Zen. You know, what's it called the the Zen of motorcycle maintenance. Yes, the art of motorcycle. Yeah, the right. Zen, the Zen of that, and. Um, and one of the books I read was a book called, um, it was one of Paul Brunton's books. Mm. And he wrote a whole series. He, he was in the 40s, I think. He traveled around, around the world at a time that, that was pretty rare. And he met a lot of different, a um, bit like Gurdjieff, you know, remarkable people. Yes. And one of those was, um, was Srinu Sakadat. I was, uh, sorry, Ramana Mahashi. Mm. And he had a chapter I think it was called something like the Red Mountain or something, but it was something that mentioned mountain. And he had he had a chapter on his meeting with her, and that reading about that, it um, I was like, wow, you know, I felt drawn. Really, I just thought this is you know it spoke to something that I wasn't finding, I think, in my own culture. And at the time, I didn't have the kind of consciousness to understand that. But um, so I was sort of finding my own way, and I literally had not one friend. 
who, who is sharing that spiritual side. It was an era where we were seeking, though, I will say there was psychedelics and, mm. uh, and it was more in the context of, of seeking something beyond our culture, you know, and that went along with the political activism and all of that, which was all part of that too. It was sort of a resistance to the status quo. Right. Um, so that was all kind of part of the era I think I was born into. And not everyone was part of that. But I was, this reading led me to go to university, to choose at university to do, I studied Sanskrit, I studied Hindi, I studied Indian philosophy and history. And um, I also studied one thing with Mao and Lenin, <laughs> Leninism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's always been there, interestingly enough. But, um, but I, I did that and I, I felt deeply drawn to a different a different way of looking at the world, of understanding a deeper philosophical, I guess, framework for the world. And I was not, I had no spiritual background prior to that. So I was drawn to that. And then at the end of that, my studies, I had the opportunity to continue at the university. You know, I always I had that opportunity, but I, I didn't want to. I just, um, and I think it was around that time I actually read Brunton's book and I thought, I'm just going to go to India and find out and um, just see, you know, I felt like I had this sort of, I remember my mother asked me, why, why India? <laughs> why are you going to India? And I remember sort of saying to her, I have to go, you know, there's some, I just have to go. I don't really know why, but I feel I have to go. And what it was, Jeff, is I didn't, I was very clear. I didn't want to go with anyone. I was 21 because I didn't want to have that reference point where you are you're engaging or meeting a culture through the eyes of something that you're sharing with someone else. I really knew I had to go alone. And, uh, and that was important because it's just you and whatever. Mm. And uh, so that, that was why I went. Um, I didn't know what I would find there, but I felt from the books, I had also, interesting enough, Ram Dass's book, Be Here Now, which was had just come out around that time. And he, of course, you know, that was inspired by his meetings with his teacher. So all of these things just spoke very directly to me, I think, some part of myself. So, yeah, that's why. Well, I what's, what, one of the things I find fascinating, <laughs> there's a couple of things I find fascinating, fascinating about that. The role that books have played in so many people's path. I mean, mm. you know, if you're in Australia in, 19, in the early 1970s, where else are you going to encounter this? You know, right. Um, and and so books played such a big part in spreading, you know, mm. spreading the 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 news about mm -hmm. about this spiritual pursuit and, and what was available in India. The other thing that strikes me is when you went to India in 1976, which is, you know, I didn't go to India until 1992. Mm. Um, but and and I haven't been since 2005. I'm sure it's quite different now than it was last time I was there. But um, even by the time I got there, there were quite a few, like Westerners were there. Uh, and, yeah. and wherever you went, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't inundated with Westerners, but you saw Westerners. Uh, Westerners were, you know, there were certain hotels where the Westerners stayed and there were always seekers and, and um, so, so where you said you didn't want to go with anyone because you wanted to be immersed in that, in that mm. culture without the connection back. Uh, 
it then came to a point where the connection back was there. And I, and from what I hear mm -hmm. uh, from people like you who've been more recently and, and uh, my wife, Amy, who went a couple of years ago, all the more so that, that you feel the Western influence now in, Very much. in, in India. So it's mm -hmm. not quite like, it's not quite the escape from your culture that it was. Definitely not. When you first went. No, um, it still is. I think if you go far enough away from sort of that sort of classic places that a lot of Westerners are at, either tourists or seekers, mm. um, you still meet something pretty different than our culture. But um, but that's in fairly remote places, I have to say, or, you know, villages outside. Mm. Um, um, so, yes, one thing, though, that was at that time, you're right. There was there were virtually no tourists. I'll say that <laughs> there was no tourists because uh, India wasn't a very easy place to be from that level. You know, no real hotels, proper mm. hotels that people would feel comfortable in much. There were small ones, but interesting enough, there was quite a wave of people seeking, and I didn't know that, Jeff, and until I turned up there. And they were seeking in different ways. Uh, for some, it was just an, an escape, I think, from their cultures. There were a lot of French there mm. uh, who were escaping into a lot of sort of very, you know, kind of Saudi world. A lot of, I mean, they were like, you know, it was pretty wild. Um, there were people who unfortunately escaped into a lot of drugs. There was a lot of heroin available in India then. And um there were uh, people who escaped or who were seeking through music. There were a lot of people who were attracted to studying uh, classical Indian music. And that could have been, you know, because of Ravi Shankar. And, you know, that was already filtering out. Mm. Um, so when I got there, I, I was surprised. It wasn't like there were lots of people, but there were people there. And the thing that I felt really I was hit by, because one of the first places I went to was Bodh Gaya. I didn't know. Someone just said to me, you should go there. You know, I got to Calcutta and I was like, what am I going to do? I didn't really know. And there I encountered these people, right, from all over the world. And um uh, you know, nothing like the numbers now. You're absolutely right. But there were people there. But what was different, well, not different, but what was really was everyone was sharing. You know, it was mm. amazing. You'd hear about this. You'd hear about that. It, there was no internet. So you didn't ever find anything on the internet. And you were, the thing that struck me as being very different about that time, you're right, was because there was no internet, there were no phones, certainly no smartphones, but there wasn't even any kind of phone. And so you were really like it's going to the other end of the world. There was nothing familiar. Mm. Uh, you really left behind your culture. And the only way to communicate was through, you know, letters that would be kept for months in certain places, post restaurants, they were called, certain post office. You could pick stuff up. But otherwise, you were alone in a very, very different culture. And mm. I think that was had a powerful effect on, on everybody, actually. Well, I, I guess I also just love the spirit that you're describing that that people mm. had. It was there was this radical spirit of wanting to discover something different. Yes. You know, that, mm -hmm. that people were feeling suffocated yeah. by by the culture that they were in, by the the roles and expectations that 
that they were mm -hmm. living under. And some people, at least, you know, as you said, not tons, but significant numbers were willing to just leave, mm -hmm. leave the world they knew and explore something radically different in search of a better way, a better, a better possibility, a better way to be human, a better. Yes. And I just think that that spirit uh, that you must have encountered among people. And of course, as you said, people were exploring all different things and some were probably mm. better than others. Uh, but everybody was sharing. Everybody mm -hmm. um, appreciated. You know, everybody shared the same radical spirit of discovery and was willing to support each other's discovery, was, was sharing teachers and like, like you yes. said, shared the book with you. And, uh, mm -hmm. it, and I think it's a beautiful, it was a beautiful mutual recognition of, that was born out of the optimistic spirit that something much better was possible if we could just figure out what it was. Yes. No, I, I think that really is, uh, I think that captures it very well. And um, you mentioned the thing about books, how the impact books had. And I would say that there was a kind of coming, a convergence of that restlessness of spirit. And when I say restlessness, I don't mean just casual restlessness, but there was a sense of looking for something more meaningful, right? Because our culture at that point was really you know, coming out of the war and then the 50s and all that, it was already becoming very, you know, very sort of material. Uh, you know, our values were very specific. The roles, as you say, all of that was really happening. And um, so there was a big push back, as we know, in the end of the 60s. And I think the push was also was at a deep level, one of consciousness, you know, mm -hmm. yearning for something more meaningful, that, et cetera, et cetera. Plus these war, the Vietnam War was going on, which sort of, you know, it um, articulated something not good about our culture, et cetera, et cetera. So I agree. I think it was the confluence of that seeking of something and that intuition, this optimistic intuition that's deep at this, I think, the, the heart of all of us, actually. I really do. I still feel that. Coming, being seeking and, and the only place I could in Australia at that point, you're right, were through books. And the books mm. were beginning to come out at that time that were speaking to that. You know, so it was a perfect, in a way, I think these things happen. They're sort of um, eras, you know, conscious right. eras of right. consciousness. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, so, so let's um, go back to you arriving in, in what was then Bombay, is mm -hmm. now Mumbai. Do you have an address for Nisargadatta that you know to go to, or do you arrive and then have to find him? Yes, I had an address. I um, I think it was in the book. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, I think it was. There was also a contact I had in Mumbai that someone had given me of someone who knew about different people and uh he was really interesting but i think i already had it i could be wrong it could be he told me um but i i still had to look it was in a very um i don't know it was in quite a very poor area of mumbai and um 
it, uh, you know, it was hard to find. Nothing was marked really clearly, right? Right. So I, it, it I dresses would, in yeah. India, uh, yes. I'm sure, <laughs> even when I was there in the 90s, were not, it was exactly. not like an address with a, a street and a number. No, exactly, exactly. So I, I found it by wandering around that neighborhood, actually, and um, asking. And I had heard that he was a beady wallah, you know, this little Indian cigarette seller. And so I was looking in those kind of stores and asking and da da da. And finally, someone pointed me to um, or led me to, to this big old rambling dark at that point, sort of tenement building, really. And there was a little beady shop underneath, but it turned out it was his son who was running that at the ten- at that time. I He'd see. retired, and um, and I went in, and um, I think a child or someone led me in there, you know, to the to the right building, to right flat apartment, and uh, you know, I knocked on the door, and I still remember this really clearly. It was actually his daughter who came to the door, and I had brought some oranges to take, you know, as a very simple uh, gift. And she sort of brought me in. I spoke Hindi, but not Marathi, but enough people speak Hindi. And so we communicated. And she sort of pointed to a part of the house with some steep stairs. And she, she said to me, basically, come back. I don't know what time that was. I can't remember. It was I think it was too late in the day. She said, come back at 10 in the morning. And um, so she took the oranges. And uh, so anyway, I went away and spent the night. And um, and I came back the next morning at 10. And I she took me in. And I think I told you this, but I, I, um, I might have mentioned this in the last podcast. But I went up those stairs. They were very steep. Mm. And I got up the top and there he he was, Masagadara, as he always was, sitting. He used to sit on this very old uh, animal skin. You know, it was a classic sort of situation. And he was sitting there and he looked up at me, you know, as I came in. And he looked absolutely directly at me. And he had these incredible eyes. I mean, they just, on one hand, they looked right through you, but on the other hand, they they were connecting. (laughs) And they had had this sort of... uh, know which I've I've seen in other people's rarely but I have that that depth almost like a kind of you know an extraordinary depth and very piercing he was incredibly focused Nasagarata you know he was very focused and he just sort of summoned me over you know and I I went and I had never in my life prostrated to anybody and I got down on my knees without even thinking and that was very surprising to me whether it was from well, who knows what, but uh, I, had, I hadn't actually done that. It wasn't, never felt really authentic to me, but I did. I knelt down behind him and just sort of, you know, which is a greeting in India anyway, put my head down and he sort of said, get up, get up and, you know, sat me down, indicated for me to sit down. And, um, and you know, he, 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 in that very first meeting, he didn't speak English but he had someone with him. There was no one else in the room but one person. Mm. And, uh, and he became um, the translator for me for most of the time I was there. And he was a beautiful man. He, I think he's dead now, but he, um, he was really a simple man and uh, an incredible translator. I, I almost don't 
think of my time with Nisargadar as being through a translator because it was such an immediate thing. And I think Nisargadar probably understood a lot of English because mm. it was very direct. They, um, yeah. So, so tell me, so, so you arrived with you and, and this person who became your translator were the yeah. only other two people in the room with Nisargadatta. Um, yeah. Yes. What did you feel? Did you, did you feel uh, uh, any kind of spiritual radiance from room, him from or him, from Nisargadatta? Uh, yeah, I felt there was, um, let me think how I would say that. Uh, yes, I felt this, it was like he had, a, he had an incredible presence, if you know what I mean. I, I, I wouldn't say it's much radiance. He was incredibly present. There was a presence of, uh, on one hand, deep stillness right that he was absolutely like a, a rock you know mm. and at the same time he was a very he's incredibly energetic spiritually so as i said there was this kind of but not in a threatening kind of way at all i never felt intimidated except on another visit which i told you about he told me off very strongly right. <laughs> but um but yeah, that I felt immediately no separation from him. I think I could say that. I didn't mm. think that. Thought didn't go through me, but I felt immediately a kind of, um, yeah, you know, uh, don't want to use the word oneness, but, yes. you know, I didn't feel any separation. Yeah. Sure. Now, do you have any recollection of what you spoke about on that first meeting? I don't, Jeff, specifically, but what I know is that I just shared with him everything that I was exploring at the time, right? And, and I know that because I know that I did quite a lot of talking. He, he asked me, you know, mm. why I was there. And, um, and I didn't really have a question. I just shared with him my kind of understandings up to that moment. And, right. um and by that point, I think I had, um, you know, I had definitely had mo more than moments of, you know, quite deep spiritual experience, epiphanies, and, you know, but like everyone, they would disappear, and I'd be grasping at them again, and you know, all of that. And um, so I, I really was talking to him, I think, about all that. Mm. And um, I think one of my deep questions for him, I don't remember the way I framed it, but was really, I wanted to find how you could kind of stop going in and out of these things because I had no doubt about you know about I don't know how to even say it but about really the um about yeah, what you were experiencing about what I was experiencing mm -hmm. yeah about the really you know, non-dual nature of of, of mm -hmm. reality myself mm -hmm. I'd had that literal non that experience where you are not separate from anything else you know there's right. just a total dissolution but absolute aliveness and awake I'd had had taste of that but I I didn't know what that really meant I didn't know how that could become who you were you know you're you're, you're kind of yeah you know mm -hmm. so my questions were more around that so what, what's interesting, one of the things that, that's interesting to me is what you just described, because I think this is something that happens in the presence of a deeply realized teacher, uh, which is uh, you are, you're compelled to kind of bear your soul, your spiritual mm -hmm. soul, right? Because mm -hmm. here you are with someone that you 
uh, inherently know mm. has 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 wisdom that you're looking mm-hmm. for like they know something that you don't know they've mm-hmm. experienced whatever it is you don't know what mm-hmm. exactly what it is but you're you're really wanting something mm-hmm. you believe they have what you want and and so you you there's a motive to be completely transparent right there's right. no you don't want to hide anything from them right because you want right. to be who you are because you really are you you really believe they they can help you and you you don't want them to have to guess at yes at, at who you are and there's yeah. no motive there's a depth of trust in yes. that connection which i think it probably you know that sense of oneness non-separation mm-hmm. part mm-hmm. of that is there's just total trust that you understand that this person sees with a kind of clarity is is as interested in what you're interested in, you know, that you're both Mm -hmm. completely interested in that. And therefore there's no reason to hide others. And so you just want to be open. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it's very, very interesting what you're saying, Jeff, about that trust, because at the time I want, you're not conceptualizing it as that you don't think, you know, I trust this person, but for me, I think the experience of what that was, is when I read that book, it wasn't like reading a book about anything. There was a direct transmission. And I think what engenders that non-separation, that profound trust and literal wanting, as you said, wanting to, there's no reason not to be transparent is because you are recognizing already what they know. Do you know I mean, there's a recognition. So for me, the question were, I had no doubt. I went to him knowing kind of he was he was you know he was it he was authentic he was so I had that deep experience of trust already before I went because I experienced it in in the book in the direct right. from the directness so yeah it was very very interesting there was just that that's interesting because uh a book like I am that mm. you know if in order for it to have a very profound influence on you in the way that it did you, that you traveled across Mm -hmm. India, you know, a week after reading it, it's because exactly what you said, it's because you have experienced something that you recognize in those words. And so part of when you arrive, you know, that person has experienced, has Mm -hmm. experienced what you're experiencing and seems to have stabilized in it in a way that you, that that is typically what, what occurs. You, You say, not only have they experienced what I've experienced, They've stabilized in it in exactly the way I, yes. I know it's possible, but I don't know how to do it. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so do you have any, any, any memory of, in terms of your question, right? Your mm-hmm. question was, how do I stabilize mm-hmm. in this? Mm-hmm. How, do, how, do, mm-hmm. how do I keep it from coming and going? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it doesn't have to be that first meeting, but yeah. But what was his answer? Like, because mm. I and I realize I, I want to make clear I understand that an encounter like what you had mm-hmm. with Nisargadatta, and this was the first day that ended up being a summer of, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. being with him every day. Mm-hmm. There's very little self-conscious awareness in a certain way going on. There's, in, yes. a, in other words, it's kind of an unfolding. Yes, that, very much. And, and yes. you're so. It's like you're in a you're in a flow, and you're mm-hmm. so in 
-hmm. the presence of the moment. Someone like that mm -hmm. is drawing you into the presence and, and mm -hmm. you want to be, you're mm -hmm. so close to what's happening. Mm -hmm. There isn't as much separation to, to draw conclusions about it from the outside. It just kind of all happens. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I, I understand that your memories will be a little yes. indistinct. Yeah. But, but what would you say was his, the message you received from him, mm. whether he said it mm -hmm. or not, I don't know, yes. in terms of how to stabilize in this? Mm -hmm. I remember quite clearly in a way, it wasn't like one answer, but I remember one specific dialogue. Because just to say, Jeff, that I want to just pick up on what you were saying, that sure. in the presence of someone like that, I felt that... Um, and he wasn't someone who did Shaktipad or he had nothing like that going. You know, he wasn't interested in that. But he, you're right, in the presence, that very presence drew out that presence in me, that mm. consciousness. Like, so once I was there, I was there. And we would have a lot of dialogue together, just exploring, actually. I remember we spent a lot of time um, really you know, just opening all this up. And, um, and then, but then this question was, was what, why was there, right? Um, and, and the whole thing, as you said, just unfolded. In fact, there was a period, there was one moment where I was nearly run over on the road outside because I realized, oh my God, I have to be careful, right? Because <laughs> I was so in this other thing, you know, I was sort of oblivious a little bit to my environment. And India, as you know, the streets are very busy. Um, so, that was all happening but yes his answer to me actually and it was said in different ways at different times I think but the one I remember very clearly was and I think it could have been I'd come back one day with repeating that question or something like that I don't know how I did it but and he said to me because by that point we were like this you know we were so in sync you know so undivided you know and I think I told you last and we even used to go for walks and you know all of this kind of thing it was just a very immersive time right and um anyway he said to me he said I know what it is with you it's because of Christianity he said you doubt you have doubt you doubt you know whatever you want to call God or, you know, the, yeah. he said that. He said, it has to be because you're Christian. I wasn't particularly Christian, but he said that. He said, and what he said was very, very interesting. He said, when my guru basically confirmed his awakening or however, whatever words he used for that, he certainly wouldn't have said it like that. He said, I trusted him. Mm. And yeah, he said, I trusted him completely and I surrendered to that. And the profundity of that, Jeff, I don't think I, I definitely didn't get at the time, right? I think I was more stuck on, no, I'm not Christian or I don't know what I was stuck on. But I, the absolute profundity of it um, was very, very interesting because later, much later, I did understand that uh, to some, you know, more to a greater degree because what he was saying was that there is a degree of surrender to reality, right? To the depth of that. And at the same time, part of the reason I, like so many others, kept slipping in and out and, you know, was, you could say, the doubting mind. It was like the doubting mind, meaning that I wasn't 
um, surrendered enough. One way to say it wasn't surrendered enough to let go of my belief in, you know, all my what insecurities, doubts, belief in being a separate person, et cetera, et cetera, which is not surprising. You know, that's the consciousness and worldview and everything I was born into very strongly in a Western culture. So in one way, he's right about the West Western culture, maybe. But he saw it in that simpler way, in that you know, using that. And on one hand, it can sound incredibly simplistic, but another, I think it was actually very profound mm. uh, because he was saying once he let go, that was reality. It wasn't like he had to fake it or he had to act like that. It just was reality because of the depth of trust he had in that, in his teacher, who he, I'm assuming, had that same relationship. He wasn't being asked to trust something his teacher said or believed in. He wasn't being asked to trust something an ideology or anything like that, but just to trust his own, the depth of his own experience, really. Mm. And, mm. Uh, and, and that's it. No buts, just that and let right. that unfold as who you are. Right. And I think this is a very interesting point because, and also his, his identification that it was because you were a Christian, which yeah. the way that sounds to me is less that you know, you had some strong Christian beliefs. And so that was a problem. I think, I think maybe what he was identifying was that because you grew up in a Christian culture in which at least for some amount of time, regardless of how much you were practicing, it's part of the culture that the Christian faith is a picture of reality, of spiritual mm -hmm. reality. So then when you pursue, uh, you know, a Hindu path, mm -hmm. And you immerse yourself in a culture in which that's assumed to be mm -hmm. a spiritual reality. But now you've got two, mm -hmm. right? Where, where yes. for someone like him, he was raised in that culture. The overarching context was that these Hindu teachings were a, a valid picture of reality. Um, and so in a way, maybe he was pointing to the fact that uh, uh, the challenge of of developing that kind of trust, and I, I know he wasn't thinking this, but the challenge of that in a kind of postmodern context, where we're aware that there's all mm -hmm. different faiths and that every mm -hmm. you know, this is you know how does this work? There's so many different faiths within each faith. They completely believe that 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 picture of reality is the real reality, but if you're seeing them all, mm -hmm. it's hard for you to believe that any one of them could be the one real reality. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you need to have some way to to surrender to the truth that you discover uh, outside of the traditional cultural context, which you know might ultimately be more supportive of it. I mean, I don't know. I just think that's yeah. very. I think it's very fascinating, and I think I'm just seeing that from our modern ears. Mm -hmm. Talk about that kind of you know my mm. my teacher told me, so mm -hmm. I trusted. Yes. In America or, or in, the, yes. in, the, in the modern West, all you can think of is that must mean <laughs> I forced myself to trust, right? Yes, because exactly. the possibility that you would just trust is, yes. is just not, yeah. it's not part of our cultural context no. where for him, it was like the teacher said it. So it's true. And there was no question. Exactly, Jeff. And I think I want to really kind of um, pe uh, penetrate this a little bit because it wasn't that he was not discriminating 
or he really encouraged critical thinking and questioning, real questions. What he was pointing, that's why I said he wasn't pointing to trusting an ideology because even he didn't identify as being a Hindu, actually, funnily enough. You know, he, none of those teachers, they were, he was from that tradition. Mm. But the Dharma was always, the, the, the Advaita Dharma uh, was not seen as Hindu, you know, and that's why it was, in, in not now, I have to say, but in ancient India, it was regarded as being incredibly assimilative, right? Because it could, including Christianity, including the essence, the mystical essence of every religion was utterly recognized beyond the ideology of the religion, right? right. And so he didn't identify as being Hindu, even though he would do teachings on the Mahabharata to his, I mentioned that last time, to the local neighborhood, right? Right early mornings and he would just do all that and bang symbols and everything and but he was like you know I do that because that's what they understand that's how they understand this and mm. he actually told me that so he wasn't I don't want to say he wasn't diminishing and he was respecting them because yeah. he, he saw that as a valid vehicle for expression or something but he himself so you're right it sounds incredibly uh it can almost sound scary like a cult leader is asking you to believe in something you know i think a lot of our postmodern minds go there yes that was not this it is something he was asking saying or remarking that i was not trusting my own the depth of my own experience and he thought it must be he attributed he couldn't understand that so he was attributing it more, I think, to, like you said, to his idea of what a Christian framework might be, which is one where, I mean, there's lots of different forms of Christianity, of course, but a lot of it is about you. There's an inherent separation between you and the father or you and the, mm. you know, the son and, you know, the, the endless thing of guilt and that it's not necessarily seen as a non-dual, even though I know the heart of, some of Jesus's teachings were that my father and my one-on-one, but you're not seen as one. It's, you know, you have to do a lot. So I think that's what he was pointing to. And I think for me, it was, um, it probably was Jeff, as you said, it wasn't that I was necessarily identifying as being Christian, but I think that Western, my Western identity with a worldview where you're brought up as inherently separate from life, from, mm. from, from life and the world and from self and from even from God, you know, that's why he said Christianity, because God is normally up there. And that's probably how he saw it. Right. And um, so you're right. And he wasn't asking me to switch ideologies. He was just saying he thought that was in the way of me recognizing the death, <laughs> excuse me, of my own realization. Mm. So that was your first meeting with Nisargadatta, mm -hmm. and we're not going to go through the whole time you were no, with him, of course, no. in this in this podcast. Yeah. Um, but you then were with him for the for the summer, essentially mm -hmm. every day, mm -hmm. and and it was just the two of you. I mean, sometimes it would be with, as you said, the local people would come, but it sounded like most days you and he went for walks or spent time together. There was a lot of you and him time during that summer. Definitely, yes, um, yes, and um, and <clears throat> yeah. Would you say that uh, the, well, looking back at it now, not, not from the, the eyes that you had at the time, but looking back at it now, I mean, most people like me, you know, I would assume that must have been 
incredibly spiritually formative to have that much one-on-one -on -one time with a teacher who's so recognized to be such a powerful uh, transmitter of that non-dual view. I can't imagine it wasn't, uh, even if you weren't aware of it, it, at unconscious levels, deeply formative. Uh, and I'm wondering now, as you look back at that time that you spent with him, uh, how you see it in, in yeah. terms of, of what it gave you and how it shaped the rest yeah. of your life. Yes. Um, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I have reflected on that. Um, I would say that that period I had, those extended years of India, doing a lot of sadhana, and I did, I spent time with Krishnamurti, you know, I, a few people, not lots, but really, the, I spent time with Raman Hashi's, you know, teachings. But then with having that time with Nisargadatta, who was alive, who I engaged with, who I was with, and, and also, Jeff, it was in a very um, non-self-conscious way. You know what I mean? I utterly, obviously, respected and, and loved him, actually. But it wasn't, he was a bit like Krishnamurti. He didn't like a lot of, you know, fussing around and touching his feet or anything like that. You know, he just wasn't like that. He was totally, he's a very authentic human being in his own humanity as well. And, um, but you're right. I feel it was, it was and has been and still is <laughs> profoundly formative. Um, and I think it's the way I see that is, um, you know, obviously I've lived a whole life since then, you know, but um, an ups and, with a lot of ups and downs, but I have, um, I think some people consider I have a, or some people call it idealistic, some people call it optimistic, whatever. And, you know, sometimes that's said in, in a positive way and sometimes in a not very positive way or more naive way or whatever uh, interpretation. But I think that it's, it actually has given me, it, it gave me a, a deep, 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 pre-thought, pre-mind trust in life and in the essential wholeness and, and actually goodness of life. You know, I really, I really feel that not as an idea, but as an experience. It's literally my experience. And even though I have gone and do go through and, and now I feel, you know, the, what's what the whole, what our planet is going through are not always good they can be terrible and they are and um and i have been through many periods of my life where i've had to have real learning experiences from mistakes i've made or things i've been involved with etc cetera, etc cetera. but throughout that there has been this anchor of and you know again some people have sort of thought well you're a very resilient person but i think what's the core of that it's it's this, I think it comes back to this, Jeff, because I feel like that period, it was deeper than our, a one-off experience. It was a period long enough for something to take root, even though I wasn't like Nisagra. I have not been, you know, in terms of that being an ongoing expression of who I am at all times or places, definitely not. But it's there as, an, as a 
an anchor of my being in a certain way. I, I can't put, I don't know how else to put it. And not just that, it's not somewhere that's an anchor I go back to. I feel it informs my, my relationship to life and my view of life, actually. Mm. It, 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 it does in ways that are kind of, yeah. So today, as you, as, yeah. as you live your life, mm. and, and we'll do another podcast where we talk mm. about mm. kind of what you're doing now and, yeah. and what this has all led to. But as you live your life, do you find yourself contemplating that time with Nisargadatta? Does it, does it arise at times? Uh, do, do insights you had then arise uh, at all? Is that... Is it in any, in it, has it in any sense become a conscious reference point or is it more uh, conscious influence on you? I would say both. It's not something that I'll say I think about, you know, every week or whatever, but it is imprinted in my being, right? And it's funny because um, Mary Atkin Adams, who we both know, she also went and spent time with Nisargadatta and she was over here the other night and it came up actually. And she also said, it's imprinted there vividly, right? Yeah. It's vivid. And um, so I think, and it is something that I think about, I think that the uh, insights, and also it took me quite a lot of years to understand some of the, even the thing I told you about trust. I thought at first I thought, as I think as a Westerner, you think, oh, just being told to trust something and trust it, that's it, is far more profound than that. And, you know, we're, we're talking about something that for a Westerner is incredibly hard to do, not to trust somebody, but to trust, to let go to that, uh, I don't know, I can't think of the word to put, but um, to the to the depth of our of who we really are, of mm. our own, of, of consciousness, to, to let that be the guide and who we are and, you know, to embody that so greatly that doesn't matter, doesn't mean that things don't rise to trouble you or that all kind of things, but you are anchored somewhere else. You know, you know, there's, a, there's, there's something that gives you the capacity to, to know even that that, that that is what it is. You know, it's an arising in India, obviously they call them some scars, you know, we call them tendencies. They could be cultural, personal, whatever. Um, structures is another word. So when you're so deeply grounded in that or connected to the truth of that, then those things don't trouble you as much or trip you up as much, put it that mm. way. Um, so his, it took me a long time to, and I think I still at times, um, you know, contemplate those truths. And I've understood a lot more of that time with him than I did at the time. Mm. And I, I had the experience of it and it impacted and imprinted, but my understanding, and I think I'm still, I think, you know, I might be wrong, but benefiting from those. From that I time. mean, I, I really think you are, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for whatever that's worth. Uh, uh, but um, I think it's an interesting point you're bringing up, which is you were there at like, I don't know how old you were, 20, 20, 21, 21, 22, 22, 22 um, <clears throat> with this, you know, retired, enlightened sage who <laughs> the world hadn't discovered yet, who, you know, by all accounts, not just yours, but, but any mm -hmm. account I've ever read was just a powerhouse of, mm -hmm. of kind of spiritual realization. And on the one hand, 
you did have this incredible openness. Obviously, mm-hmm. you had left Australia to go to India in pursuit of something. You read this book and left the week later to cross mm-hmm. India. To, to, so there was a, a tremendous receptivity and openness that you were encountering him with. And at the same time, you had a 21-year-old brain trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. which is, is interesting that there's those two levels of experience. There's the there's the yeah. kind of experiential level of just being mm-hmm. open and being in his presence mm-hmm. and being pulled in to, mm-hmm. to something. And then there's whatever your 21-year-old mind mm-hmm. could figure out at the time, which then years go by and your mind mm-hmm. expands, mm-hmm. grows, and you learn. And, and so your mind's understanding of what happened changes mm-hmm. over time. Yes. And was happening at the time, regardless of yes. whether you understood it or not. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I think I was, you know, I think I was probably 22. And then I think I told you I went back again when I was uh, 23 or 24. And um, I was maybe I was 23. Anyway, I, um, I was immature, obviously, from that level. Right. My, you were, you were that age. Yeah, the capacity to, um, and, the, and also the cultural distance. You know, I was a young deeply uh, conditioned, you could say, just naturally, Westerner. I was a young Westerner who was a young woman of my time. So I was, like you said, on two levels, receiving that teaching from a level that had nothing to do with my culture. But mm. how I interpreted it or responded to it was culture, you know, from that. Absolutely. So I, I find this interesting because mm. we lived together for 20 years in a mm-hmm. spiritual community, which was long after that mm-hmm. your time with Nisargadatta. Um, and our experience coming into that was completely different because, uh, you know, I was much newer to the mm. path when I encountered that community. I had never met, I mean, I had met, I, you know, I had seen mm-hmm. Ram Dass speak, I had seen Titnat Han speak, I, you know, I had seen them, but mm-hmm. at that point they were speakers, you know, they were, yeah. They were going somewhere. You were in an auditorium with 500 people. And, you know, I wasn't sitting there. Mm. Every, I wasn't going on walks every day for three months. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so when, when I met the teacher that we eventually followed, uh, you know, that was my first deep encounter with yes. someone who had, you know, some degree of that presence. Uh, so I think it's fascinating because by the time you mm. in, in, made that encounter with the community that we were involved in, uh, this had happened years mm-hmm. ago. And before this, you'd already been in India doing deep mm-hmm. retreats for years. Mm-hmm. And after that time with Nisargadatta, you had done all, you know, so mm-hmm. it's just interesting to me, the richness of your spiritual life over the decades of time that you devoted to seeking, I think is a, you know, just a, it's like a remark to me, it's a remarkable phenomenon. You know, the, the, um, the amount of dedication that your life exemplifies, uh, which is, which is very powerful. You know, it's powerful. It's a powerful inspiration. It's a, it's a powerful, um, you know, in a way it is, your expression of of your your own attainment right that that you there isn't anything else for you uh, right <laughs> in, in life you know so and that's mm-hmm. 
Mm. You you have stabilized. I mean, you, you've lived a life that has been 100% dedicated to this. And that's mm-hmm. kind of as stable as it gets. <laughs> there's, there's, there's nothing else, really. Um, I just think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. I mean, I just to respond to that, just very briefly, mm. I um, you're right. There's been nothing else. <laughs> that's very, very interesting. You know, it's always been, and like I told you, we're not going to go into it now, but am I some of the things I'm involved in now, some people could think, whoa, very different. But yeah. to me, they're one, it's like I said, there's a through line through the whole thing. And, um, and it's, I, just it's to, never, I've never been tempted. It's, I've done all kinds of things, but this, this has always informed that or, yeah. Exactly. Yes, I just wanted to make mention that, that <clears throat> what you're involved in now is, is some very important and, and significant and serious political activism, mm. which could yeah. seem very different but at the same time i think <laughs> it's not too far reached to see how it's the same uh no. how it's yeah. a continuation mm-hmm. we will uh mm-hmm. we will talk about mm-hmm. that but yes i i just you are an inspiration to me <laughs> uh you have been for a long time and you continue to be because of the one pointed focus of your life on spirit uh you know, which is a big part of why I want to mm. talk with you. And I, I feel like it's it's a message. It's, you know, just in the same way that you were encountering something with Nisargadatta that may have been beyond what you could understand. Um, mm-hmm. and, and maybe beyond understanding, period, anyway. I don't know. Mm. Um, but in, in the same way, I think your life story, as people hear more about how you've dedicated yourself for so long it's an encounter with a possibility mm. and 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 this was the big possibility that i got when i met yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, andrew cohen our, our, mm-hmm. our previous teacher mm-hmm. and i remember it distinctly the first time i heard him speak i realized that what he was fundamentally telling me was i could devote my entire life to spiritual pursuit mm. and no one had ever told me that before yeah. like before him, I had right. just assumed it had to be something more like a hobby. Right. That you That's did on right. the side, but that it could never be the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, it only really works if it's the most important thing. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, your life demonstrates the possibility of a life in which the pursuit of the ultimate spiritual realization is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's why we connect, Jeff. <laughs> I like spirit somehow. And just to say that I feel I am even, I mean, dedicated is an interesting, I, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's dedicated, but I just feel incredibly, I don't know, fortunate, you know, in the deepest way. Because I feel I was, um, I think there's a kind of calling. I don't know, calling, I don't mean that yeah, a, yeah. in a lofty way, but mm-hmm. just, you know, I, it was almost like I had no choice, you know, right. and yeah, I did, obviously, I've gone with this, but I still feel that. And even this latest work I'm doing, I often thought there was a book, a book about fundamentalism called The Reluctant Fundamentalist, and I often think I'm the reluctant activist. You know? Right. There's a certain level of me that can't believe I'm doing what I'm doing, and yet there's this calling that's the same one that's uh, driven by the same optimism, actually. Right. 
Now, and I think this is a really good point because I don't see you as someone who is dedicated in the way that like I might be dedicated to mm. working out every day, right? Which is basically right. I have to force myself to do it. Right. Yes. It's, a, it's a kind of, it's, it, has, it has more to do with the kind of trust that you were describing mm. like to mm-hmm. talk to you about, which is you just trust that this is the most mm-hmm. important thing. It doesn't, you don't have to, you're not weighing six different things and deciding to keep choosing this one. It's just the only right. one that really matters to you. Yes. Yeah, the only yeah. one that seems ultimately, uh, I don't mean real, like the other things aren't real, but ultimately real, you know, ultimately, right. yeah, it's, at that it's, level. And I can relate to that. It's just, mm. it is the most important thing. It's yeah. not that other things aren't important, but this exactly. one's at least yeah. a little more important <laughs> than everything else. And it's connected to everything else. That's the other Absolutely. thing. Do you know what I mean? It's connected. It's, it's the, um, without that, everything else becomes a little bit, uh, how can you say skewed yes you know, and the connectedness between that which is significant can get can get obscured and mm. and and even can be obscure can be uh how can i say anyway it's a whole nother conversation but i think a lot of the mess that happens is because we're disconnected from that that's yes. why you know uh, i think that's yeah. true so We'll end this because yes. <laughs> uh, we have so much more to talk about. So I think the next time we talk, we should talk about your current work mm-hmm. and we'll relate mm-hmm. it back to all this. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think I need to hear more about some of your time with, I can't remember his name, the beggar. Oh yeah. Ramsarat Kumar. Yeah. yeah. And Yuji yeah, yeah. Krishnamurti and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and the yeah, other half people. dozen or so teachers <laughs> that you yeah. had the privilege of spending some time with uh, and we'll, We'll slowly unravel this this mm-hmm. this story, um, but I really want to thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I you know it's really um, it's just privilege to talk about this, you know, and to, in a certain way, it's like honoring Sue Nasagadara, yeah. who he is and what he is now, still, you know. So, thank you, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So and I'm. We'll just, talk again. We definitely will. <laughs>